0: Our epistle reading this morning is from 2 Corinthians. We will be reading from chapter 7, verses 2 through 16. If you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have great confidence in you and take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. For when we came into Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his comforting, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was not on account of the one who did the wrong or of the injured party, but rather that before God, you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this, we are encouraged. In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was, because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you, and you have not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater, when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad I can have complete confidence in you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: There are a number of things in my home that make me feel like less than manly in the traditional sense. One is that uh, my wife mows the lawn more than I do, right? Aren't I supposed to be out there pushing the lawn more? She likes to do it. I really don't. We don't care. We just say, okay, you do it. She drives as much as I do when we are going places. We don't have this, I'm the guy. And, and one of the other things is that Aaron is the one who builds the fires in our house. We have a fireplace. I've never had a fireplace growing up. We never did when we lived in Grand Rapids, but she grew up with one. And in her home, as a little girl, she was the one who built the fire. She tended the fire. She poked the fire. She kept it going. And so she does that now. I'm okay at it, but I'm not great. And so the other night when I was working on this sermon, I went outside. We have a little fire pit in our backyard and I decided I was going to start a fire. So I started some sticks and some paper and some other scrap wood from my workshop all on, see, I'm sort of manly in some ways. And, and it was, it was burning really good. I said, all right, it's ready for a, a log. And I went to our wood pile and I picked out a log and I put it down. And rather than starting on fire, it must not have been dry enough. It must not have been ready. I don't know. It just, it, it, it actually put out the fire. And it just began to smoke and smoke and smoke. And I actually was afraid that someone was going to see this smoke and call the fire department. It was that much smoke. And I thought to myself, man, these people who make up these phrases are idiots, right? You've got, there, there are adages and, and sayings that make no sense. They're simply not true. You know, the customer is always right. Have you ever met a customer Uh, They're never right. What doesn't kill you make you stronger? You tell me. I get hit by a bus and I happen to survive. I'm going to be more powerful. There's a watched pot never boils. Yeah, it does. I've done it. Exactly the same amount of time as an unwatched pot. And of course, where there's smoke, there's fire. In this situation, as soon as the smoke started pouring up, no more fire. And you know, I thought that's so perfect that this happened, and this is probably why it happened—not my ineptitude, was so that God give me a little. Illustration here. Because Paul is talking in 2 Corinthians 7 about a situation where there is smoke, but no fire. Where there is the, the byproduct of something, and yet that thing is not really there. And as he talks to the Corinthians, he says, You've got the fire, but there are situations where it seems like there should be fire, but it's just so much smoke, smoke and mirrors. And of course, the background here is that in 1 Corinthians, Paul had written a letter to the church in Corinth rebuking them and harshly because there was sin in their midst, there was sexual sin in their midst, there was different kinds of sin, and and, and there were the people doing the sin, and then the church as a whole was tolerating it. They were doing the easy thing, was just look the other way, maybe talk about grace or call it, you know, mercy or something. But in reality, Paul says, no, the merciful thing would be for you to address this. The right thing is for you to address this. In fact, the church leadership was looking the other way while this sin happened even though we know that Paul described the pastoral ministry to Timothy as preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So, reproving and rebuking are part of it. Today, the same thing is happening, perhaps more than ever. Churches are are turning a blind eye. They're not dealing with sin. They're not even calling sin, sin. People don't like that. And, And when... They heard this rebuke back then. It was a similar situation. They thought, "Can we live in Corinth. You know what kind of town this is? Can we really? But they were moved and convicted by Paul's letter. And they did find themselves filled with sorrow. And they repented. And they turned. And that made Paul happy that they dealt with it. Not only did they put out or expel the immoral brother, but eventually he repented, found true godly sorrow, and he was brought back into the church. And Paul was ecstatic, not just because this kind of sin had ceased. You can do that all sorts of different ways. Legalism, shame, guilt, lots of rules, cultural expectations. No, but because there had been a spiritual awakening in their midst. And in order to explain how happy he is and why he's so happy he lays out for the Corinthians the distinction between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. And this is something that the church desperately needs to rediscover. Now, this little passage is something I've brought up a number of times Uh, over the years. It's Every preacher has kind of his little pet verses that that come up, even when you preach expositionally. But I, I want us to drill down deep and look closely at this. And see what it is that Paul is talking about. What does it mean for there to be worldly sorrow? And what does it mean? In fact, let me just read this, this verse uh, that I want to focus on. We'll, we'll look at the whole context. But the, the main thing I want to focus on here is verse 10. For godly grief, or godly sorrow, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. So you have these two tracks. Godly sorrow... Leads to repentance, leads to salvation and life. Worldly sorrow, next stop, death. I know which one I would prefer, and I assume that you do as well, but I think that for us to look closely at this, anyone who has ever asked themselves, Am I really a Christian? I've really, I've, I've struggled lately, I've failed lately, am I really a Christian? It was my faith? Will benefit from a look at this text. And anyone who's struggled with the idea of, of continuing to sin, and, and especially having a besetting sin, will also benefit from looking at this text. And especially others who are counting on some experience they had way in the past, would benefit from a look at this text. So when the scriptures say, repent and believe, and you will be saved, we have to allow the Scriptures to define repent and define believe. I think James susses out believe for us quite a bit. What kind of faith is saving faith? Well, he says it's not dead faith. It's not simple mental assent. No, it's, it's a faith that works itself out in love, as Paul says. Or, or James says it's a faith that manifests itself in works. Faith without works is dead. Faith with works is a living faith, the kind of faith that will lead one to salvation. And in the same way, the repentance that leads to salvation, it works itself out without regret. In, that's the kind of sorrow. It works itself out in repentance without regret. Now, we could go simply to some of the old confessions or catechisms for the answer here of, of how you determine and or distinguish one from the other. Uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, one of my favorites, says in, in question 87, what is repentance unto life? And the answer given is very succinct and very good. A, it says, repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his or her sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ does with grief and hatred of his sin, turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. So that's that. But maybe we want to look at some examples and delve a little more into the particulars because that's an awful lot to process in one sentence. In the past, I've used the examples of Peter and Judas. And I think they continue to be good examples of the two kinds of sorrow. Both of these men, on the same night, turned their backs on Jesus. And it's especially fitting because we just had Holy Week and just had Maundy Thursday and Good Friday. And we remember how Peter denied Jesus three times after boasting that he would even go to his death before he would deny him, even once. But he denied three times, the the last time with an oath, calling on God as his witness, I've never met the man. And then, of course, Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Also bad. He led the mob right to Jesus and said, this is the man, and he betrayed him with a kiss. So both of them completely turned their back on the one they had sworn to follow on the one they had sworn to protect, on the one on whom they would pinned all their hopes. Both of them were full of sorrow. We read in Matthew 26, And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. And then Matthew 27, we read, When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders, which was the other text that Valerie read for us today. Both of them had a sense of of their wrongdoing. They were filled with some kind of sorrow or remorse, and both wanted to make things right. In fact, Judas sets out right away to try and make things right. What's the difference then? The difference is in the heart. And when you, you have to get into the Greek, I'm sorry, guys, I can't stop. But, but the, 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 the words for remorse and sorrow and, and, and weeping are important. The word used in Matthew 27 to describe Judas being filled with remorse, it's metamelo. And it, it means, very woodenly translated, to be interested or to care afterward. You ever run into this in your life? Someone really cares an awful lot after the fact. Well, well that's what happened with Judas. He's filled with care. He's filled with anxiety about it after, there that goes. After a word. And, and it's the same word that Paul, by the way, uses here in verse 8. Uh, when he says, Even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, although I did regret it. That word regret is the same word for what goes on inside of Judas. He he's filled with regret. In fact, if I could sum up worldly sorrow in one word, it would be the word regret. Simple, regret. Naked regret without much else to adorn it. Now you don't need a cross and a crucified and risen Savior to be filled with regret. Everyone experiences regret, especially those people who say they have no regrets. And that guy who's all over the internet who got the tattoo that says no regrets. That's hilarious. But, but you don't need God to somehow make you able to experience regret. Everyone, everyone does. In fact, people, because of worldly losses and disappointments, will experience regret. This is not something that has any saving power. Compare this to the word metanoia. This is the word for true repentance. And it means a change of mind a change of a heart, it means a, a change of self. You were becoming a new creation, as Paul has just said recently in 2 Corinthians here. The King James here says, not that you were made sorry did I rejoice, but that you sorrowed unto repentance. The world will tell us, and the church has bought into this to some degree, that if you're sorry and you really feel it, you really mean it, that's what matters. You'll hear that sometimes. Here, pray this prayer and you'll be saved. And if you pray this prayer that says, I'm sorry for my sins, and you really mean it, then you will be saved. And Paul here says, Nope. There is a sorrow, a real sorrow that's worldly sorrow, and it does not work itself out in salvation. A.W. Pink wrote it this way, Sorrow in itself is not repentance. Neither is remorse, self-condemnation, nor external reformation. True, these are all the attendance and consequences. We might say they're the smoke, but repentance itself is turning from sin to holiness. And we see in the example of Corinth how that plays out, how they turn from their sin back to holiness. And I think we find in the Scriptures six characteristics that we can use to check our sorrow over our sin to see if it is true repentance or worldly sorrow. And if you are taking notes, you might want to write these six things down. First and foremost, they have different sources. The source matters. Where is the sorrow coming from? Because in the scriptures, the the if you wouldn'tly translate this, the distinction is, is literally between from God's sorrow on one hand and of the world's sorrow on the other hand. So you got sorrow from God, that's the source, or of the world. It, it comes from within me. Worldly sorrow you find inside yourself. And so if somebody's preaching and they say, listen, look inside your heart and tell me if you don't find sorrow for your sins, the sorrow you're going to find in there, unless the Holy Spirit is introducing it, will be worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow, on the other hand, is not inside you. It's not native to you. You're not born with it. Spurgeon wrote on this topic these words, Repentance is too choice a flower to grow in nature's garden. Pearls grow naturally in oysters, but penitence never shows itself in sinners, except divine grace works it in them. If thou hast one particle of real hatred for sin, God must have given it to thee. We see this playing out immediately in the early church. Acts chapter 2. Now, after this is Peter's preaching and people are listening, they read, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts 11, there's this meeting where, where the apostles who are all Jewish get together and they're like, we've been hearing that Gentiles are coming to Jesus, Gentiles are believing without going through the Jewish faith, and they hear the case for it, and we hear that they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So if there's repentance that leads to life, God has granted it. It is a gift. God is the source of it. It doesn't come down deep in my heart and I pull it out, or even it wells up on its own. This is where revivalism often gets uh, things so wrong, getting people as worked up as possible, pulling heartstrings, trying to strike the chords of emotion. You you get the right lighting and the right raspy voice. You get the right tinkly piano or like a U2-sounding little guitar thing in the background. Turn up the pressure. Whereas Jesus said, count the cost and then follow me. That's a sober thing to do. Count the cost of taking up a cross and following a man who dies on his own. We can create all these things, this smoke. It's not hard. Just like throwing that too wet of a log on the fire created smoke. We can do it. And it's even kind of an art, kind of a science, just like building a fire only to, to build the smoke. You can create these things through what Finney called the proper means. The proper use of means. And I can get people all worked up and all sad and all upset. But Paul says, I wasn't full of joy that you sorrowed. He's not the kind of preacher just looking for a big emotional response. You know, when I started doing the uh, junior high camp that I pastor at Lake Louise, which was in 2000, 2000. Uh, 17 years ago, I've been doing it longer than the kids have been alive. That's weird. And, uh, I realized I had inherited an expectation that Thursday night of the camp week was crank up the pressure, like, like the spiritual thermostat. You turn it up to 90 because, well, the kids, they haven't been sleeping. I don't know why, but they don't really sleep. And they're all wore down and they're tired. It's Thursday. They've been there for days. They're sad that they're going home in a couple days. But it's not yet Friday, so they haven't broken loose. So you take advantage of that. And you wear them down more with some emotional stories and you try and get them through emotional manipulation to whatever, raise their hand or say some words or something as if that sort of sorrow in that moment produced by those means leads to salvation. And I had to say, listen, I'm not going to do that. I will proclaim the gospel as clearly as I can, and I will do it on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday, but I'm not going to try and turn this into some kind of smoke situation. I want the fire, and God gives the fire. Our God is a consuming fire. Now, there's nothing wrong with emotion. True repentance will have a welling up of sorrow for sin. It must but that sorrow isn't the goal. It's a means to an end. It's something that comes on. It's the smoke, not the fire. In fact, in, in verse 9, he says, I, I did this because I did not want you to receive damage from us. That, that's why he had some regret about all of this. Even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, although I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though for only a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. He didn't want to damage them. And you can damage people with this sort of thing. Brokenness. I remember this argument at uh, the, the last church that I attended before I came here. We were singing a song called, uh, What I Long For, uh, Take My Life is what it's called. It's one of those that's got a parentheses title. Because the thing you keep singing is, is not the name of the song. And uh, the, the words were, holiness, holiness, holiness is what I long for. Holiness is what I need. Holiness is what you want for me. Righteousness, righteousness, righteousness is what I want for. And it continues like that. And we were singing a last verse, which was, brokenness is what I long for. And one of the elders in the church said, that's dumb. Why are we singing that? I don't want brokenness. I want a wholeness. Brokenness isn't the goal. And we talked about it and we debated it. And I'm I'm in seminary and I'm like, oh, you don't understand. And we came to the conclusion that everybody in the conversation was right. They were just at different places in the spiritual walk. There are those who are longing for that brokenness. Longing for that situation where they're at the foot of the cross saying, I've got nothing but my sin. I've got nothing but you, Jesus. They want to be broken. And there are those who are already in that state. And they are longing for the next thing, which is wholeness. It's not the goal to be sad and sorrowful and to weep and to whip ourselves and standing waist deep in freezing cold water to show our piety. No, wholeness is what God will bring us. And he brings it to us via our brokenness and spiritual poverty. So when Paul sees their sorrow, he's only encouraged because it indicates to them a hopeful sign that the Spirit is at work in them. Meaning their sorrow will turn to joy and satisfaction in Christ. Godly sorrow comes from God, then, and leads to God, and is required by God. It's all about God. Worldly sorrow comes from me, points me back to me. It's all about me, and therefore there is no life in it. It's like plugging a power strip back into itself. I remember doing that when I was about five. I was like, oh my goodness, I just came up with something brilliant Oh, nothing happens. You, you simply cannot. It's like that candle when it's out of wax. Worldly sorrow burns right out. Secondly, and they're not all that long, they're prompted by two different things, two different sources, and brought on and, and triggered by two different things. And quoting Pink again, he says, The sorrow of the world is not at the sin, but at its penal consequences, so that the tears of pain are no sooner dried up then the pleasures of ungodliness are renewed. The kind of sorrow the world feels at worldly losses is the kind of sorrow that does not save. And and, and we have examples of this in Scripture. Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh was hard-hearted. Pharaoh rejected, let my people go. No way, I won't even consider it. And then we find him in Exodus 9. He says uh, he calls Moses and Aaron to him and he says to them, this time I have sinned, the Lord is in the right and I and my people are in the wrong. How long did that last? About until they were on their way out. And he changed his mind. Why? He wasn't sorry for his sin. He was sorry for the plagues that his sin was bringing upon them. He was sorry for the consequences. He was sorry he got caught. Another great example of this we find in the first two kings of Israel and Judah. The first one being Saul, of course, and the second one one being David. Both of them sinned in big ways. Saul, he he had a couple things going on. First of all, he had the time when he he was about to lead the people into battle. They wanted to have a sacrifice. There was no one there to offer it, so he said, Hey, I'll offer it. I can be everything. Check me out, guys. I'm sort of a priest now, too. And he was rebuked for that. The other thing was when he was fighting uh, the people and he was supposed to destroy everything because this was still part of the conquest. He was supposed to destroy all of their animals, all of their wealth, everything. And what happened? He cut a deal with the king and he kept a bunch of the stuff for himself. And when Samuel arrives, he says, why do I hear the bleeding of animals? Bleating of animals. Why why do I hear that, that you've kept a bunch of stuff for yourself? And at that point, he begins to rebuke Saul. David also was rebuked by a prophet He had Nathan come to him. He told him this story. Because David's sin was that he was up on the roof of his palace when he should have been off leading his armies, and he looked, looking around at all of his domain, and he saw a beautiful woman bathing. He didn't go, oh, that's embarrassing. But he looked and said, oh, she's beautiful. Oh, she's very beautiful. And then he he went, this is how sin works. He said, bring her to me. And so she was brought to him, and he committed adultery with her, and he impregnated her. And then he said, oh, i got to cover all this stuff up. And so then he said, oh, bring her husband in, and, and we'll make it look like he got her pregnant. It'll be joyful instead. And he said, I won't sleep with my wife. I'll sleep on the ground while all my brothers in arms are sleeping on the ground. So David said, I guess I have no choice but to have him put to death. He had him killed on the battlefield. What a hor- I mean this is basically breaking all Ten commandments in rapid succession. You would think that if one of these guys was going to walk away with his righteousness still intact and still be king after this situation, it would be Saul. And yet because of the ways they respond, it's not. It's David who truly repents. What does David do? He he, When he finally recognizes his sin, he's broken in his heart, and he writes Psalm 51, which is one of the most beautiful psalms of sorrow and repentance, and godly sorrow that has ever been written. It's so full of heartbreak, and it's so full of, of tears, and it's so full of God's glory and mercy. But how is it that our man Saul responds to all this? Defensively. Samuel comes and says to him, Has the Lord as great delight has the lord as great delight in burnt offering and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the lord behold to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen better than the fat of rams for rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the lord he has also rejected you from being king saul said to samuel i've sinned for i have transgressed the commandments of the lord so there's Sorrow. There is even confession and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return me with me that I may bow before the Lord. So he wants to put the blame on the people. I was listening to the people. Lord, it wasn't me who wanted the fruit. It was the woman you put in the garden with me. Lord, it wasn't me. It was the people. And as Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day. And then he said, Saul, again, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. Still wanting to save face. Yes, I sinned, but honor me in front of the elders. Don't embarrass me like this. Don't do it. And Saul says, no, it's been torn from you. You have not repented. You've just felt worldly sorrow. Contrasting God's, or rather David's godly sorrow, we see that both kings admitted they sinned. Both have some sort of sadness, but the sadness that we see in Saul is regret. It's remorse. It's brought on by losing the world's approval, and what it really wants is to gain that approval back. We see this anytime someone's caught in public sin, someone in ministry even. What, what, what happens when somebody, is, is, is their, their junk is aired all over the TV and the internet? They come out and they are sorry. They are sad. The tears might be real, but why are they sad? Because they've been caught. Worldly sorrow does create palpable grief, but it's the grief of wounded pride, not the grief of a heart of repentance. David's sin also is coming out, by the way. There's scandal with David. The world's going to know that this righteous king is not as righteous as everyone assumed, and yet he's not worried about saving face. He's worried about being in the face of God and and being sinful. He's worried about his standing before the Lord. He he says, yes, yes, I, I I can deal with all that fallout politically. What I can't deal with is the thought of having offended a holy God who loves me. Worldly sorrow is wrapped up in self-pity, godly sorrow in self-denial. We must repent even of the worldly repentance, that kind of fruitless, clueless, self-centered sorrow that has no power to save. Psalm 51, as David repents, he writes, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. He knows that unlike Saul, The the solution here isn't for me to do something big, make some big sacrifice, do something that makes me look righteous and pious. It's rather for me to repent in a broken, contrite heart. Isaiah 66, we hear the same thing. This is the one to whom I will look, says the Lord. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. The main and sole concern of the broken and contrite heart is that our holy God, our loving and gracious God, has been offended. Our broken heart is broken because we've broken His heart and incurred His wrath. And for those of us who are on this side of the cross, we're also brokenhearted because we know that Jesus died on the cross for these very sins that I continue to commit. True repentance will be thinking of the cross, not of my pride or my reputation. David even says in that psalm, against you and you only have I sinned. Now, he's sinned against all sorts of people. He's killed a guy. He's treated this woman like an object and abused his power in a horrible way. The whole kingdom actually pays the price if you read the story. And yet, he he, he knows he's done that. But he says, Lord, primarily it's against you that I've sinned. He's, he's putting all the blame on himself and focusing on the loss of others Well, Saul is putting all the blame on others. And focusing on his losses and his reputation. Thirdly, godly sorrow hates sin, while worldly sorrow hates consequences. One of the, one of the consequences that worldly sorrow hates is feeling bad, and so it can be confusing. I feel bad, and I hate that I feel bad, and I want that to go away. And yet, if I'm not thinking about the fact that Christ died for these sins, and God is offended by these sins, and I am separated from Him by these sins, it's still not godly sorrow. Godly sorrow hates sin. Worldly sorrow hates consequences. Jesus said, go and sin no more to the woman when He forgave her. And this is just not head knowledge of the evil of sin. Oh yeah, I know that it's bad. It's experiential. Like a child who's been burned stays away from the fire and dreads the fire. I've been burned by this before. We too dread and hate sin when we've experienced godly sorrow. Repentance makes us see the evil of sin, to see sin like God does. And we we turn away from it. Like you'd turn away from the the bloated carcass of a dead animal if you came upon it. It's a change in the way we view everything around us because we're a new creation. And it's a change in allegiance as well. We've had a great blessing in the other two congregations that meet here and that many people from Nepal and many people from Burma have been able to become American citizens. And many of us have been able to go and see these things take place and rejoice with them. And it's interesting to me that the, the language used here describes it turning away from all former allegiances. The, the one becoming an American citizen says, I hereby declare an oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty, of whom or which I have heretofore been a subject or citizen. Have fun recognizing what that all means if English is not your first language, but that's what they say. Any prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty, I no longer am in allegiance to them. And of course, most of them are not coming from places where it's some horrible villain, but there is a change. And for us, we, we were of our father the devil, Jesus says, and now we've been adopted and we belong to Jesus Christ Christ. And we have had a change in allegiance. Godly sorrow says, I want nothing to do with the old. Worldly sorrow says, I have to be more careful in how I follow those old princes, potentates, states, and sovereignties so I don't get in hot water again. Fourthly, godly sorrow must be accompanied by faith. It's always repent and believe. That is how one is saved. And you cannot truly believe without repentance. There's no saving faith without repentance. And you cannot truly repent without belief. The, the, one must believe in Jesus Christ. That's why in Romans ten nine. Confess with your lips that Jesus Christ is Lord. Believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. Zechariah twelve ten, we looked at on Good Friday. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn as one mourns for an only child. How is it that we look on him whom we've pierced and mourn? How do we repent? We look with the eyes of faith and we see him there. Fifthly, godly sorrow is not primarily concerned with getting it together like much of today's Christianity is. The Pharisees had it all together. And there's a number of brands of religion that are not pharisaical and and mean and full of rules, but all the same, despite waving the banner of Christianity, they are about getting your stuff together and feeling good about it. There are many, many books and programs on television, again, under the church name, but not with the gospel, where where you say, oh, okay, now I've got it together, now now I'm going to be a new me. I'm going to do it out of my own strength. I'm going to do it out of my own worldly sorrow. I'm going to do it out of what I found in my heart. Ah, oh, that feels good. It's another step toward completing the project that is me. Saying, I want to get my life together. I want to stop the bad habits. I want to start giving back. That's all well and good, but it has no power to save you. I believe there is a large percentage of people in churches today who have that sort of human religion with that outward focus. Instead of rooted in the heart, they're worried about appearances like the Pharisees. How I look from the outside and how I feel on the inside, those are the two things that count. And as long as those two things are are okay, then I must be okay in God's sight. But it's those two things that are exactly what worldly sorrow concerns itself with. And finally, godly sorrow will bear fruit. Not not only that it will bear the fruit of repentance and lead to salvation, but will continue to bear fruit. Here in verse uh, 11 of the chapter, he, he lays out, if you count, there's seven things. These are not seven steps to get to godly sorrow. There's seven fruits, seven results that one would see. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So there is a sense of diligence, of continuing on, of overcoming, persevering in the faith. It's not temporary. Many times, people will find religion in whatever situation, and everyone around them says, Yeah, it'll pass. I think I have a particularly good sixth sense for this. When someone says, oh, right, right, I'm all about Jesus, and there's a lot of me, 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 I'm doing this, I'm about this, not I'm at the foot of the cross and God is doing this. And it's easy to see when it will be a little religious phase. That's worldly sorrow. Now, will we backslide? Yes. Will you, if you have godly sorrow and repentance and are being saved and have been cleaned, will you have times when you walk backwards, when you wander away? Yes, but eventually you will come back just like David did and repent and turn from sin and back to holiness. Psalm 51.3, David says, my sin is ever before me. It's continually before me. As long as we sin, we sorrow, we grieve, we repent, we confess, and we are forgiven. That's the life of a disciple. Take no comfort then in something that you felt a long time ago if that something has been foreign ever since then. Worldly sorrow is not indifferent. It's deadly. It leads to death. One of the problems... Uh, that doctors find in in the the NICU when they have premature babies is that their little undeveloped lungs can't breathe properly. And it's a huge issue. They put them on ventilators, but all the high pressure has its own side effects, and there's all these issues. And in in the late 90s, they began experimenting with this bizarre idea of taking critically ill little premature babies and filling their lungs with liquid. And you say, that sounds like a bad idea, but it's oxygen rich liquid, and they actually breathe through it. How amazing is that? And it, and it helps them to, to grow to, to full health and become robust and, and, and be able to go home. But here's the thing like with the oxygen rich liquid, godly sorrow leads to life. But if you get the wrong liquid filling your lungs, it's not indifferent. It is deadly. We might ask the question then, if I think perhaps what I've had is worldly sorrow, is it hopeless? Is that the end? I mean, I can't produce godly sorrow in myself. You just said so, preacher. What if I've been faking it? What if I've been hiding this from everyone and pretending I feel all this stuff all along when really I think it might have just been a little bout of worldly sorrow? Well, listen, David hid his sin for at least nine months, but he repented. You may be dead spiritually, but Jesus specializes in raising the dead. Turn to him. What do I do? What do I do in a moment when I sin and I think, I don't know if, if, I think I'm saved, but I don't know if my my response to this sin has been worldly sorrow or godly sorrow. Pray for godly sorrow. Let me encourage you, like we had on, on Wednesday night in our school of prayer, spend more time praying for yourself. Wow, that sounds selfish. No, it's not. Spend more time praying for yourself, for your heart, to overcome your sins, for you to have a Christ-like view of the world around you, and God will work through you, and he will use your hands and feet as his hands and feet. What do I do? Pray for godly sorrow, for new desires. Pray to hate what you loved and where needed to love what you hated. There's a wonderful quote by Calvin, and I don't mean John Calvin, I'm talking about Calvin who turns and says to his tiger, Hobbes, I feel bad that I called Susie names and hurt her feelings. I'm sorry I did it. It's a rare thing for Calvin to feel. Hobbes says maybe you should apologize to her. And there's a frame where Calvin thinks about it for a minute. And then he says, I keep hoping there's a less obvious solution. Religion wants to offer up less obvious solutions nonstop. What God calls us to do is come to the foot of the cross, like David, broken, and say, Lord, I want the godly sorrow. Brokenness is what I long for, because through brokenness comes repentance, comes salvation, comes life, life eternal with you. In Hebrews 12, we read, Let us also lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Spurgeon says when we repent of sin, we must have one eye upon sin and another upon the cross. We don't want smoke. We want fire. The fire comes from the Holy Spirit. John came and baptized people. They said, what is this all about? Are you the Messiah? He said, no, no, there's one who's coming after me. I baptize with water. He'll baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And that fire inside us brings us the conviction of sin, causes us to continually repent and confess our sins, makes us more and more that new creation. And if you're saying to yourself, I don't know if I've got it, there's one place to get it. And that's the foot of the cross. You can't pull it up from the depths of your heart and the cockles of your heart. You, you can't reach down deep into your emotions and manipulate and twist them. The four right cords can make you cry, but you know what? Only the Holy Spirit drawing us by the Son to the Father can truly bring repentance, which leads to salvation. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we go out as your servants, I just pray that we would remember this. There is no way that I can cause someone to experience godly sorrow. All I can do is proclaim the gospel. It is up to you to do the miracle. We thank you, Lord, that we don't have the, the burden of carrying out the right use of the right means so that we can make people want to repent. Lord, we pray that we would simply be clear and bold in the way we proclaim the gospel and trust you to do what you do. And Lord, if there's anyone here today who has not truly repented of their sins, who who has not truly believed on You and turned from sin to holiness, I pray that right now You would lead them to the cross. We know that it's Your work, but that You do that work through the instrumental means of the reading and preaching of Your Word. And in this moment, I pray, as Your Word has been read and preached, that You would draw Your own to Yourself. pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.